0: We are going to be, as I mentioned earlier, in Genesis 50. So just a quick um, kind of intro into the series. We are walking through the Old Testament together, looking at these um, uh, primary characters um, that we find in the Old Testament. We're looking at how um, their individual small stories fit into the bigger story that God is telling through the Bible that we might better understand um, our stories and what God is doing in our life. And so today we're going to be looking at Joseph. And so Um, A couple of things. First of all, this will be our first uh, time to deviate from the lineage of Christ. So Joseph is a descendant of Abraham, but it's through his older brother, Judah, that the lineage of Abraham continues all the way to David. And then from David, of course, to Jesus himself. Um, That being said... Joseph's role in the Bible is incredibly significant. We're going to learn a lot about God today, about the big things of God, including what redemption is and what it looks like, how it works. We're going to be learning about forgiveness and what real biblical Jesus-centered forgiveness looks like. Uh, We'll even be talking today about God's will and how that applies in our everyday practical lives. So that's the ground we're going to cover uh, with Joseph. So what I want to do first is I want to tell most of Joseph's story to bring us all to Genesis 50 when everything kind of comes to um, this big epic moment. And so, so Joseph, we talked last week about Jacob, right? And so Jacob had 12 sons. Joseph was one of the younger, not the youngest, but almost the youngest of the 12. And he was daddy's favorite. Uh, he got special treatment. We see that play out over and over again um, in the way that Jacob treated Joseph. Now, as you can imagine, if you have siblings, this led to some sibling rivalry and jealousy issues that started way young and, and, tr- and it continued all the way into adulthood. Matter of fact, um, Joseph had this, this God-given ability to interpret dreams. and uh, And so there was one particular instance where Joseph... Had this dream he wanted to share with his brothers, and uh, and so the dream went something like this. He said, "Hey guys, I want to tell you about this dream I had. It's super cool! You're gonna love this. So here's what happened. So in my dream, we were all gathering up hay in the field, and we were gathering it up into these bundles." and I gathered up all my hay into a bundle, and it, and it stood tall and, and proud, and then I looked out to see y'all's bundles of hay, and they were all bowing down to my bundle of hay. Isn't that cool? And his brothers are like, it's on. First chance we get, dad's not looking, we're taking you out. Now, one particular instance that, that followed, they were out, the brothers were out in Shechem, out tending to the herds. And dad was like, hey, I need to check in on your brothers. So Joseph, do you mind running out to the fields, head out to Shechem, see how your brothers are doing, and then come back and give me a report. Now, now imagine being older brothers out here working in the field, younger, younger brothers at home, taking it easy, and you see him coming from a distance to check on you, right? Like, oh, what's this about? I don't know, daddy's boy's coming out here to check on us, make sure we're doing our job. And so they begin to scheme. They're like, you know what, enough's enough. Let's take him out right here. You want to do it? You in? And so they begin to say, yeah, let's do it. Let's, let's take him out. So the first plan was, hey, we're going to, let's just kill him. We'll take some of his clothes. We'll smear some blood on it. Take it back to dad. We'll all stick to the same story. A bunch, some wild animals killed him, and then we'll be done with Joseph. And so one of the brothers, though, had a little bit of affection for Joseph, uh, his name was Reuben, and he's like, you know, I don't know if that's the best plan, guys. What, I mean, we're all going to kind of carry that around for the rest of our lives. We'll have his blood on our hands, so what if we just threw him in a big hole and left him there? And I'm sure some of that, well, yeah, you mean slow death, starvation? Okay, yeah, it's a better idea. And so, there's the, so here comes Joseph, and uh, they, they grab him. They're like, ha, 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 like your coat of many colors. See how this works, and they threw him down into the pit. Took his garment, and they were gonna take it back to dad and say, "Oh, some animals took Joseph, whatever." And so they're sitting around thinking about the plan, what they're gonna tell dad. And Reuben, the one that stuck up for Joseph, he was preoccupied doing something else, and because uh, he was actually planning on coming back and rescuing Joseph out of the pit. And uh, and so that was his plan. Well, while he was busy doing something else, the older brothers uh, were sitting there, you know, and rejoicing in the fact that Joseph was now in the pit and pretty much done. And they see a band of Ishmaelites traveling through the desert. And like, you know what? I got a better idea. What if we get him up out of the hole and we sell him? We can keep the same story, but we'll make some money off of this little twerp. And we're going to sell him into slavery. And so they do. It's kind of like uh, the beginning of the movie Gladiator, if you've seen it, where he's basically, yeah, he's found by this band of gypsies. And they put him in a cage. And now he becomes a slave. And so this is Joseph. So now, younger brother, daddy's favorite, is a slave headed to Egypt. Well, as Joseph's story unfolds, um, first things first, he gets bought in a slave auction by Potiphar. Potiphar takes him into his household as just a regular old slave and quickly begins to realize, this is a special kid. I mean, he's got some things to offer. He's smart and he seems trustworthy. So Potiphar began to trust him with stuff around the house, started light, and then just added more responsibility, and more responsibility until Joseph became like Potiphar's right-hand man. Like when Potiphar was out of town, Joseph was in charge. That's how, that's how much trust he had earned from Potiphar. Well, Potiphar had a, uh, had a wife who had a thing for Joseph. Joseph caught her eye and more than once, she came uh, to, to Joseph and try to seduce him into a relationship, and he declined, 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 but one particular instance, you know, she had had enough, and she was frustrated, so she tried uh, to start this relationship with him. He's like, no, I've told you, we're not going to do this, and she gets angry, grabs his garment. He flees, right? He's running, which you should do, and, uh, and so she begins to yell for help. Help! Help! Joseph! he tried to do all this stuff to me, and calls in the other male servants, and they're like, what, Joseph? And so she spun it and said that Joseph was pursuing a relationship with her, Potiphar comes home, end of the story is Joseph gets thrown in prison. So, so far, daddy's favorite, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery, makes his way up to the top of Potiphar's house, now he's back at the pit, he's in prison. Same thing begins to happen in prison. The keeper of the prison begins to recognize in Joseph, this guy's, he's a smart kid and seems to be trustworthy and so began to give him some responsibility. And over time, Joseph began to rise up in ranks among the prisoners until he was the prisoner over the prisoners. He was keeping up with who was who and making sure everything was happening and he was kind of running things in the prison. Well, while he was there, he had an encounter with two specific inmates. And uh, these two guys, one was the cupbearer for Pharaoh, had done some stuff and got thrown in prison. The other was the baker and the baker had gotten thrown in prison. And they each have these dreams at night and they can't figure out what these dreams mean. And so Joseph hears about this and he's like, hey, come here, tell me about your dreams. I have this knack for dreams. It didn't work out for me, but let me just see if I can interpret your dream. And so the first, the cupbearer shares his dream and Joseph's like, okay, well, here's what your dream means. In a few days, you're actually going to get out of here. And not only are you going to get released, you're going to get restored back to Cupbearer. All is going to go well for you. Sweet. High five. Boom. So the baker, the baker says, well, here's what my dream was about. Tell me, tell me, what does this mean? He's like, not so good for you. You're not going to get restored. Matter of fact, your life's about to end. And so, right, high 5 woohoo! No, like, what do you want? So, as, um, as the plan unfolded, as God's story unfolded, sure enough, the cupbearer gets released, gets restored. The baker actually loses his life, gets put to death. Now, you would think the cupbearer, right, would go, dude, there's this guy in prison. He interpreted my dream. It didn't. The scripture said he forgot Joseph. And so if two, two years go by after this. And Pharaoh has a dream, actually has more than one dream. And it's, it's troubling. He's like, I can't figure this out. I keep having these dreams and I can't figure them out. He shares it with a couple of people. Nobody has an interpretation, but the cupbearer is there. And he hears Pharaoh talking about this. And he's like, hey, Pharaoh, that reminds me of this guy that I met in prison. I actually shared my dream with him. And he told me I was going to get out and get restored. La la, here I am. Maybe you should tell your dream to Joseph. So Pharaoh said, bring Joseph here. So Joseph comes in, Pharaoh shares his dream, and Joseph's like, that's pretty simple. Here's what it is. And he begins to interpret his dream, basically says, it's this, Pharaoh. Uh, The land of Egypt is about to go through seven years of blessing, like blessing. Grain, produce, it's gonna be a really nice seven years. Okay, okay, tell me more, I like where this is going. The next seven years, though, are gonna be really hard, and our land is gonna be stricken with a famine even beyond Egypt, and people are going to go without. And so Pharaoh, not only is that the interpretation of your dream, but Joseph begins to give him counsel and says, so here's what you need to do. In the time of plenty, you need to store up more than enough for Egypt to make it and enough even that we could sell to other countries. And so as, you can, as the story unfolds, this begins to happen. Joseph finds favor in Pharaoh's sight. He begins to move up the ranks in Pharaoh's, among Pharaoh's men to become second in charge in Egypt. He's in control of the commerce. He's making decisions over the grain storage and all that was Pharaoh's was put in Joseph's charge. Now, the story is gonna come full circle because once the famine hits, the seven years of famine, remember, Joseph's brothers and his dad are still out there trying to make a living raising sheep and growing produce. And, and so famine hits and they're They're sunk. They're going hungry. And so they have no idea what's going on with Joseph. It's like, you know what? We need to, we've heard that in Egypt, they stored up a bunch of grain. So maybe if we go there, they'll sell us some grain and we can make it through this famine. And so Jacob sends Joseph's brothers to come to him to negotiate a price on the wheat or the grain so that they can make it through the famine. Now here's the interesting thing. They don't even know that it's Joseph they're dealing with, if you read the story. I don't know if it's because he was dressed more like an Egyptian than one of the sons of Jacob, or if it had just been so long, or if they just, it was maybe the furthest thing from their mind that Joseph was still alive. But they don't initially recognize Joseph. But of course, Joseph recognizes them. In in one particular instance, he recognizes them, and it breaks his heart so deeply. He can feel the lump in his throat. He leaves the room, so he can go in the other room and just weep and cry as he's reliving all the pain of being abandoned and and left for dead and sold into slavery. And then he comes back, he gathers himself, comes back in, and he negotiates a price and sends them on their way. It's not until later on when they continue to come back for grain that he veils himself to his brothers and they realize it. Now, all this is going to come full circle because at one point, Joseph goes to Pharaoh And instead of just selling grain to his family, he says, Pharaoh, listen, if I've found favor in your eyes, would you grant this request? I want to move my dad and my brothers here. And I want to settle them in a fertile place in Egypt so that they're no longer going without and having to come and buy grain. And so Pharaoh says to Joseph, I grant your request. And so Joseph's dad and his brothers, they move to Egypt and they settle. Now, but this time, Jacob, he's, he's a little older in age and his, he's getting near death. And, uh, and after Joseph reveals himself to his brothers and Jacob finds out Joseph's still alive, he's like, man, I wanna see him, bring him to me. And so before Jacob... Passes away, Joseph comes to see his dad, and Joseph brings his sons with him, and they just have this family reunion kind of time. And Jacob is, is just hugging and, and loving on Joseph, my son, is alive, and, and look at his sons uh, and my grandsons, and they just have this great family reunion. Well, all is well until dad dies. Because once dad dies, now the only thing standing between Joseph and his older brothers. Is removed. And this is where we're going to pick up the story. In Genesis chapter 50, starting in verse 15, Jacob has died, and now the story has come full circle, and what Joseph's brothers did to him, it's time for that to be confronted. And so here we are in Genesis chapter 50, starting in verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So Joseph's brothers are full well that what they did to Joseph was wrong, right? They weren't trying to make excuses for it. I hope hope he understands. This really worked out for him anyway. They're like, Hey, I. I hope he doesn't do what we would probably do if somebody did that to us. What would we do? We'd pay him back. Now, that's a natural human response when we've been offended, right? I mean, I've never been sold into slavery, but I've been made fun of, I've been lied to, I've been abandoned, whatever. Like you've been hurt, right? And your natural human response is, I want you to hurt too. I want you to feel what I'm feeling. I want you to be paid back for the wrong that you did. And so his brothers, right, are, are, are just waiting for the hammer to drop. And now that dad's dead, it's a good chance that he really hates us. He was just being nice to us for dad's sake, and now he may actually repay us. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this commandment or this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did Evil to you. Now he's playing the daddy card here. Let's just tell Joseph that Dad said, "Hey, let's play nice." And so the brothers are like, "Okay, let's go. This is a good plan. Let's do this. Let's go to Joseph, and let's let's tell him this is what Dad said, and let's ask for forgiveness." So they do. And verse 17, excuse me, the end of uh, 17. And now they said, "Please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father." And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Now, they're coming to Joseph, they're asking for forgiveness, but I want you to see in this is what Joseph's response was. What did Joseph do? He wept. What does that tell us about Joseph? Well, it tells us that whatever pain he felt for the wrong done to him, he still feels it. He's still hurting when he sees his brothers, he still sees that look when they looked at him from the bottom of the pit when they threw him in there. Whatever his last sight of them was when he was being dragged away in the caravan of slaves, he's still feeling all that. So he begins to weep. Now I'm saying that because in a minute, we're gonna talk about forgiveness, right? And so forgiveness is not getting to that point in your life where it doesn't hurt anymore so you can move on. Like, forgiveness happens even when it still hurts. Even when you still feel the violation and the pain and the abandonment of what was done to you. And so Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Now, verse 18. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place, for am I in the place of God. Now, remember the dream he had about the hay? You remember what the hay did? His brother's hay was bound down to his hay. That just came to be, didn't it? They're bowing down before him, begging for forgiveness. This would be a great opportunity to say to his brothers, remember the dream I had? This is it. Remember? Remember how I told you there would be a day where you would need me, you would bow down to me? This is it. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He says instead, do not be scared. Don't be afraid of me, for am I in the place of God? Now, this tells us so much about Joseph and his perspective on all that happened to him when Joseph looked back over his life and he thought about his story, all the ups and downs, all the betrayal, all the pain, all the hurt, ultimately Joseph knew it wasn't his story, it was God's story. It wasn't his life, it was God's life. And so what does he say? He says, listen, you're talking to the wrong person. I'm not God. If, you wanna, if you've got some guilt issues, you need to take those to God, but don't be afraid of me. I'm not him. And we're gonna see in a minute where He goes from here. But before we do that, I want you to just think about that. I want you to think about your own life. Who does your life belong to? Who's the owner of your life? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is talking about this very thing. And he's talking to the church, kind of like us here today. And here's what he says about the ownership of our life. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price so glorify God in your body. So Paul is making a case for why we should glorify God with our bodies. He says, listen, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit's living in you. But not only that, you don't belong to you anymore. You were bought with the price. That whole Jesus on the cross thing, right? You were being purchased. You have been bought with the price. So here's the conclusion. You're not your own anymore. Kind of like when Joseph was bought with the price and he no longer belonged to himself, right? Right? He was subject to whatever his slave master wanted. And another time in life, he was subject to whatever the prison keeper wanted for him. And another time in life, he was subject to whatever Pharaoh told him. In the same way, Christ says, listen, or Paul says this about you like, you were bought with the price, and you are not your own. Now, the great struggle comes in when we who are Christians try to retain ownership. And it may not be all the time, but in certain times, we try to take back over ownership of our life and I want you to hear me on this, trying to retain ownership of your life after you've been bought with a price will not lead to joy or peace or a sense of purpose and confidence in God's will for you. Not only that, when you try to retain ownership of your life and yet God's plan is unfolding, you are gonna be on the edge of victim all the time. If anybody in the Bible had the victim card to play, You can make the argument it could have been Joseph, right? But he doesn't play it, does he? He doesn't say to his brothers, look at what you did to me. You have no idea the lonely nights I spent and the pain and the hunger and all I went through and being falsely accused. And I had to go to prison because of you guys. But he doesn't, does he? He doesn't play the victim card. Why? Because he knows that his life is not his own. God's story is unfolding. What's happened to me is is part of a bigger story and and I don't own the story. It's not my life. I'm not the owner. I'm not the victim. If you're taking notes, the first statement in your notes says, the people of God understand that their lives and stories belong to God. If we don't grasp that, if you don't grasp that, you're going to struggle with forgiveness. just telling you. Because if I own my life, and I'm essentially sitting on the throne of authority of my life, then it's my job to repay you for the evil you've done to me. I've got to be the judge. If I, don't make, if I don't make it happen, nobody else is going to make it happen. Are you with me? And so until I grasp this idea that my life doesn't belong to me, my life belongs to God, I will never get to a biblical understanding of redemption or forgiveness. Let's look at what Joseph says next. As he recounts the painful memories of all that his brothers did to him, he says, as for you, talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me. So nobody in the room is pretending like the bad stuff didn't happen, right? Brothers are saying, we've committed evil against you. Please forgive us of our transgressions. Joseph is saying, you did some evil junk. It was wrong. He's not sweeping it under the rug. He's not pretending like it didn't happen. He says, as for you, this is what you meant. You didn't accidentally sell me into slavery. You meant to do this. You meant evil against me. And then comes this profound phrase, but God meant it for good. So which was it? Were the things that were happening to Joseph the result of his brother's intentions or God's intentions? What you meant for evil against me, God meant for good. Now he goes on to explain what the good was to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Right? God did some big stuff through Joseph. Like thousands of people were kept alive because of his prophetic ability to interpret dreams, plan ahead, steward resources well, and then feed people when famine came. So Joseph's thinking about the big story, not the little story, right? He's saying, well, you meant for evil in my life. God meant it. He used it for what? For good. So I want to think for a minute about God's will with you. So last week we were talking about Jacob and I was talking to you about how God has a plan and a will for your life. And some of you that may catch you off guard, maybe the first time you've heard that, God has a plan for my life? I wonder what that is. I wonder how I know if I'm in God's will for my life. So let's, let's talk for a minute about God's will and how that, how that works. So, so among theologians, there's this understanding that God has essentially what's described as two wills, okay? Okay. And so let me kind of explain. One is God's decree, which is his plan, what's happening. The other is his commands. The command part is static. It's not up for debate. So like, you don't have to pray, hey, God, I'm thinking about killing my neighbor. Um, I really need the Holy Spirit to tell me if that's the right thing to do or not, right? You don't have to pray that. Why? Because God's like, no, don't kill your neighbor. But well, My neighbor's been a jerk. I don't care. Don't kill your neighbor, right? You don't have to ask God what to do in that situation. But in a lot of other decisions, we pray, God, what should I do? Should I take this job? Should I stay where I'm at? What school should my kids go to? What college degree should I get? Should I even go to college? Bacon, sausage, I don't know. Just all these decisions I've got to make, right? And so, so God's command is, are the things that are super clear. God said it's God's will for your life that you not kill your neighbor, not steal stuff, not taking your neighbor's wife to be your own, those kinds of things, right? We don't have to ask God. But then we have this whole other category of things unfolding, and we see unfolding in Joseph's life, and it's, it's a question of, well, what's your will here? How do I know, God, what your plan is? So God's commands, God's decrees. Now, there's this debate that arises once we start talking about these things, and some of you are familiar with this debate. On one end of the theological spectrum, you have this camp of thought that God is completely sovereign, and he is sovereign. He inflicts his sovereignty over every molecule, every moment, every breath you take, just the one you just took right now, the look you're giving me right now, what you're wearing, the seat you're in, et cetera, et cetera, right? That's one end of the spectrum. God's completely sovereign. Then the other end of the spectrum is what we like to call the the wind-the-clock-up Perspective. I don't, we don't wind clocks up anymore. When I was a kid, we had one. You'd wind it up, and then you would let it go, right? So there's another perspective on the other end of the spectrum that would say, no, God created the universe. He wound it up like a big clock, and then he walked away. And now he still calls from a distance and says, hey, come, let me save you, let me rescue you, let me have a relationship with you, but he doesn't mess with the unfolding of free will. Uh, some of you... May have never even thought about this. Some of you may have already decided what you believe to be true, and that's fine. However, I want to caution you not to not to make it an either or situation. That's the problem I think oftentimes we make with God. Like we're talking about Joseph. Which one was it? Was this God's plan or his brother's plans? And the scripture says, oh, it was both. And so somewhere on this spectrum, there's a, there's a place where we come to understand God as a sovereign creator of the universe, He foreknows everything. He knew what you were going to eat for breakfast and what you were going to be wearing and what seats you were going to be in. At the same time, he beckons to you and he calls you to to, to choose him. And so rather than being an either or, could it be more of a both and? Now don't ask me how that works because I don't know. But here's what I do know. This is how we got our Bible. Like think about it. How many authors wrote something in here? A bunch. This compilation of books was written by dozens of authors um, on multiple continents spanning multiple eras of time. Yet, it is incredibly accurate, according to history, consistent with itself, and it's telling this one amazing redemptive story. It's a miraculous piece of literature. But the Bible would tell you it's more than that. It's more than just this amazing book. There's something supernatural about it the Bible. So I want you to think about that. How did these authors write the Bible? When Paul sat down to write a letter to the church in Ephesus, what was going on? Did he slip into a trance and just sit there, and God put a pen in his hand, and he just started writing, and then when he got done, he came to, and he was like, "Whoa, I wonder what I wrote, and then he read it? Or did he sit down with intentions? Did he sit down with something on his mind he wanted to address as he wrote? Well, Peter talks about how the Bible was written in 2 Peter chapter one. I want you to hear a few verses here. This will help us understand how God's will unfolds and how God lays his intentions on top of our intentions. In 2 Peter chapter one, verse 19, Peter writes, he says, we have this prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place. So Peter says, hey, pay attention to this book. It's gonna be like a lamp unto your feet, a a lamp shining into a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing that this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men. So how does that work then? if Paul sat down with some things on his heart and mind to write a letter, right, then then how did it work? Well, look at what he says next. But men spoke or wrote from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to introduce you to a a somewhat big word. It's the word superintention, okay? What that means is that as I go about my day in my life and I carry out my intentions, God has the ability to lay his intentions on top of mine and superintend things, which leaves room for me to make decisions about bacon or sausage. Am I gonna wear the burgundy shirt or the gray shirt today? Am I going to, right? And this just continues all throughout life. But what God is doing is he's superintending his decreed will, his plans through my life. And that's how Joseph stops and looks back at all the harm done to him and says, you know what? I can see y'all's intentions. Your intentions towards me were evil. And at the same time, through the same stories, through the same ups and downs, God's intentions were good. Mind blown. Right? This is how God writes the Bible. This is the story of Jesus. I want you to think about this. Who killed Jesus? Did the Romans kill Jesus? Did the Jews kill Jesus? Wait a second, he died for our sins. Maybe I killed you. Did you kill Jesus? But then wasn't this God's plan? So maybe God killed Jesus. Let's look at the scriptures for a minute. Acts chapter 2, Peter's preaching. uh, This is the first recorded sermon in the church after the church launches. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man delivered or tested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, listen, delivered up according to the definitive plan and foreknowledge of God. So, who does that say killed Jesus? God did. He delivered him up, right? But then keep reading you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Who killed Jesus? Is Peter confused? Did God do it? Did the Jews do it? Did the lawless men? The answer is yes. Did I do it? Did you do it? Yes. It's not either or, it's both and, right? So in Isaiah 53, back in the Old Testament, God's describing Jesus. And this is where we find the verses about like, the lamb uh, who will be led to the slaughter, and by his stripes we will be healed. The first part of verse 10 of Isaiah 53 says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So what was it? Was it those, those nasty Romans that killed Jesus? Yeah. Oh, well, what about the Jews that were envious of Jesus? Yeah. Well, what about you and me? Didn't he die for our sins? Maybe it was, Yeah. But what about God the Father whose foreknowledge and will was unfolding on earth through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? Yes. You see how it's not either or, it's both and. You see how God takes his intentions and his plan and he lays it on top of us and he superintends? Listen, this is the premise for the idea of redemption. Without understanding this, right, redemption does not have any value if what has been done to me that was evil can't be flipped around and turned into something good, the best hope I have is to sweep it under the rug. How does that work for you? How does that work? It doesn't. If you're taking notes, redemption is when God takes what is intended for evil and turns it into the greater good for his people. Notice I added the word greater there. It's not like God just neutralizes evil and just like, you know what, let's just neutralize it and act like it didn't happen. No, God takes what was planned for evil and flips it into something that leads to your greater good. That's what's going on in Joseph's story when he says to his brothers, guys, listen, you don't need to be scared of me. This is my story. This is a much bigger story unfolding here. And what you meant for evil, God meant for good through you selling me into slavery, through your envy and your jealousy of me, God fed thousands and kept them alive. God kept nations alive through your evil. Redemption is when God takes what is intended for evil and turns it into the greater good for his people. Now I wanna end with just a, a, a quick look at forgiveness itself. I think far too often in the church, we have too weak an idea of forgiveness. I think far too often we, we take this idea of agree to disagree or sweep it under the rug or pretend like it didn't happen and we call that forgiveness, but that's not at all what we see here in Joseph's story. If you go back and look at verse 21, he ends by saying to his brothers, once again, do not be afraid. Do not fear. I will provide for you And your little ones, thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. He did the opposite of what I normally wanna do when somebody does evil towards me. He blessed them. He didn't just say, all right, let's move on. What's behind us is behind us. I'm letting it go. We're moving on. He didn't, right? So he took this, this desire for repayment and he swished it into a desire to bless. You see that? He would have been just to say, you guys are jerks. You guys really did me wrong. You know what? You owe me. But he didn't. He turned that desire and that right for repayment into a desire to bless. If you're taking notes, the last statement, forgiveness is letting go of the right and desire for repayment, exchanging it for the desire to Bless that is different from how most of us view forgiveness, isn't it? Forgiveness is not a passive sweeping under the rug of past mistakes. Forgiveness is letting go of the desire for recompense or repayment and embracing a desire to bless. Forgiveness is when I no longer want to see you hurt the way you hurt me. I no longer want to see you punished for what you did to me. And I now want to bless you. Listen, I'm gonna say something that may be incredibly challenging to you. Until you're ready to bless, you aren't ready to forgive. And so many of us are struggling, maybe even right now to forgive somebody. And the problem isn't that we don't know who Jesus is. The problem is that we are retaining ownership of our story. The problem is we're still making ourselves judge and king. The problem is we don't see our lives the way Joseph saw his life as not our own. This is God's story. You don't owe me anything. Don't be scared of me. And when we get to that place, we realize that. Then we can come in contact with redemption. And we can say, you know what? What you meant for evil, God's going to turn into something good. You don't owe me anything. Matter of fact, I just want to love on you. I want to bless you. I want to be kind to you. True forgiveness isn't possible until you and I see that you have been bought with a price and your life is not your own. The greatest act of surrender is to lay your life before God and say, God, this is yours and and leave it there. Listen, we can't fully forgive until we understand that our life and our story belong to God and he is taking what is meant for evil towards us and turning it into something good. Until we see our life this way, you and I will never be able to fully exchange repayment what you owe me. For now, I just want to bless you. I want you to let that truth sit on you today. I wonder how many relationships in this very room need real forgiveness. You no longer owe me anything. Instead, I wanna bless you. I wanna leave you with a couple of thoughts to reflect on and then I wanna spend some time praying for you and and asking our worship team to come forward and then we've got an exciting baptism on the way. But let's start first by just thinking about maybe God, how God has spoken to you today and think back over your life story. I want you to think about how God has shown himself to be involved in your story, even during seasons where you weren't pursuing him. Have you seen that before? Have you seen evidence of God working in your life and and you're like, wow, I wasn't even pursuing him and yet he was working. I want you to think about this. Can you think of some things in your life that at the time seemed really harmful and yet now looking back, you're able to see a good that came out of it? Like that's redemption. And then I just leave you with this final thought. Are there any people in your life who you're struggling to forgive right now? Because the problem may, not be, may be, not be that you don't understand who Jesus is. The problem may be is that you don't understand that, listen, they don't owe you anything. It's not your story. And the God you believe in, the God you trust in can take what was meant for evil against you and he could turn it into something really good. So I don't know what, who might be struggling with that. I just want to pray over all of us and then uh, we're going to move to baptism. So let's do that. Father, we thank you for Joseph's story, God. We see just a beautiful picture of who you are. God, we understand that you are sovereign and that you are unfolding your plan. And God, at the same time, you're using our mistakes. You're using even our bad decisions, God, to unfold a beautiful plan in our lives. And God, I pray this morning that you would help us to understand that our lives are truly not our own, that we have been bought with a price. Father, help us to see our lives the way Joseph saw his life. God, help us to understand that, that, Father, through everything that was intended for evil for us, God, you have redeemed it and turned it into something that has led to our good. Father, I pray that if there's anybody here right now who does not know you personally, who has never... God, by faith, trusted in the work of Jesus that today would be that day. So God, for the rest of this service, I pray your Holy Spirit would be active, moving in this room, moving in our hearts, God. We pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus.